Would you turn to Colossians? Colossians chapter 1. Today we'll be going through verses 21 and 22. We are going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. And sometimes even word by word. So we find ourselves today in Colossians 1 verses 21 and 22. Now in the past several weeks... We were so enriched as we journeyed with uh, the Apostle Paul going through this wonderful ancient hymn from verses 15 to verse 20. This ancient hymn was flowing and spilling over with praises to our Savior Jesus Christ. With every phrase we've learned of who Christ is, it was as it were that our hearts stood up And we sang melodies of every stanza of this hymn. And our affection soared to heaven. We were in tune with the Holy Spirit as Christ was magnified to the place of preeminence. And we found our souls singing and responding with the chorus saying, Amen to that. Who's worthy of being placed above all. The creator, the sustainer, the reconciler of all. Who? Who is worthy of our supreme love, our utmost devotion, but our Redeemer, the Lord of us all? And I want to ask all of us today to continue joyfully to exalt Jesus Christ with Adoration, acclamation, let us ascribe all glory, all honor to his name. Now why should we do this? Why? For today, it's more personal. More personal. We ascribe glory to his name. We give him the place of preeminence because of what he did for us. What he did for us. Let's read verses 21, 22. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you. He's been more specific here. You. In his fleshly body through through death, in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Now in the last verse that we looked at last week, we found that Paul spoke of Christ, that he reconciled all things. And we've learned that it did not mean that he saved all things. No, it just means more like He sorted out all things. It means that he ordered everything to be in the right place. That through Jesus' death and resurrection, he organized all things to be in subjection to the God-man, Jesus Christ. Whether Satan, seraphim, or sinners, all are beneath his feet. We, We can call this general reconciliation. The universal cosmos reconciliation. Very well. That was last week. Now for this week, 
What Paul does is that he moves from the general to the specific. He moves from the submission of all things to the salvation of the elect. And so what are we going to do in this passage is that we are going to be consistent with what Paul penned down. We're going to plunge to the depth of, of, our, of the ocean of our depravity. And then we're going to ascend as high as we can in the infinite grace of Christ. As we are going to reflect on the fact that we who once were lost souls in this dark world, broken clays as, as we were, and yet through Jesus, because of His mercy, He has become our potter, molded us into vessels of honor. From being captives to sin. To having become trophies of His grace. And there's a reason why Paul did this. The reason why Paul moves from A to B. It is to appreciate what Christ has done for us. Because in order to appreciate what Christ has done. We must know how dark. The darkness of our depravity was. The pollution of our spiritual condition is the black velvet, if you like, that makes what Jesus did for us shine all the brighter. So, water down our condition and you have diluted the glory of Christ's reconciliation. What makes good news good news is the bad news. So what is the bad news? Or more importantly for today, how bad is the bad news? And that's what we're going to start with today. We're going to look at two aspects, exactly as penned down by Paul. First, how bad is the bad news? And the second is how good is the good news? So we'll start with the first one. How bad is the bad news? And we read in Psalm, uh, sorry, in verse 21, and the very first word, and. Now, with this word, of course, what Paul is doing is he's connecting this wonderful ancient hymn with what he's about to pen down. And it's as though Paul did not want to stop. He wanted to add his own one extra stanza to this wonderful hymn. It's like Paul is saying, I'm not done yet. This is too good to just finish off here. And it's like Paul is about to preach after the preaching is done. He's about to sing after the song is sung. Why? Because there are more reasons why Christ ought to have the first place in everything. So, verse 21, it says, And although you, who's the you? It's the Colossians. We know that in verse 2, he tells us who these you were. And they were formerly, that is, before Christ, before Christ reconciled them, B.C. And what Paul is doing here is that he's being more specific and as though he wants to use the Colossians as a case study to, to show off the loveliness of Christ. Their lives before Jesus saved them, 
was a testimony of how gracious, how forgiving, oh, how merciful Christ is. It's at this point, Paul wants everyone reading this text to turn it into a mirror. Brothers and sisters, we must see our souls shaped in this text. We must see the condition of our hearts stamped in this passage. Why? <clears throat> because while Paul is specifically targeting the Colossians, yet what he wrote here applies to all humanity. So, keep this in mind. What are our lives look like apart from Jesus Christ? What do they really look like apart from Him saving us? Three descriptions. Alienated. Second, hostile in mind. Third, engaged in evil deeds. Now let's break him down, take him one at a time. First, alienated. What does this word mean? It means estranged or separated. It's, it's aliens, you know, or, or we've, we've become foreigners. It's like tourists in a, in a foreign country that really don't know much about the language or the currency or anything like that. Now, what is Paul referring to? Well, he's referring here to the separation that exists between God and man. And this can't be seen more clearly, I believe, than in the story of Adam and Eve. This is where it began. Once upon a time, before the fall, they loved God. They loved Him. The supreme pleasure of their lives was to know God and to enjoy God. But immediately after they sinned, what happened? Genesis 3 verse 8 says, They heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. That's the separation. Hid themselves from what? From the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. The presence of Yahweh can be also translated to be the face of Yahweh. Wherever you see the word presence, that is actually literally the face of God. Which seems that uh, in the coolness of every day, that they enjoyed beholding the face of God. They were in communion with God face to face. But once they sinned, that relationship they enjoyed with God was cut off. And then, what did they do? They sought to hide from the very face of the one that they enjoyed supremely. The face of God. They were kicked out of the garden. And as we know the rest of the story, cherubim was placed with flaming sword in order to ensure that they would never come in direct contact with God again. Ever since that point of time in history, there was this infinite chasm between God and man. Holy God and sinful man. We're no longer in the same page. Every child that is born, born, separated, alienated from God. 
It says in Psalm 58 verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. That's the same word. The wicked are estranged from the womb. Now furthermore, this separation are two-way separation. It was from God's perspective, there, was a, there is a separation. We see this in Isaiah 59 verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. Our sins have pulled down a thick curtain blocking God's beauty from being on display before us. Our prayers as unbelievers never rose beyond the ceiling. We prayed, we supplicated, but we were alienated from God, which means that God drove His index fingers into His ears because He saw our sinful condition. He would not hear us. That's from God's perspective. And from our perspective, alienated means also that in our natural state, we desired anything but God. We were never interested in God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. The knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, even the law of God are like foreign language. Unbelievers don't understand them. They can't relate to them. Their hearts are not oriented towards the things of God. That's why Romans 3 indicts the entire world and says in verse 11, there is none who seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. What does this mean? Imagine with me for a moment that somehow God, let's say, God prepares a grand feast filled with all these most delicious and nourishing dishes. There are hungry believers inside, in, in this banquet. And what are the believers doing? They're tasting this delicious food. They're savoring the flavors. They're being nourished by all that God is offering to them. And where are the unbelievers? They're separated. They're outside. And they try to look through the grid, try to figure out what is going on. They can't grasp the value of this banquet. They don't have appetite to what God is offering. And they look and they see the feast and they come out and they conclude it's a waste of time, waste of money. Why? Why are you even there? Why are you loving the brethren? Why are you making sacrifices to those who would not even reciprocate whatever you're doing for them? That doesn't make any sense to them. Why? Because. Of sin. The love of sin blinds their eyes. They have a twisted and perverted hearts. And these hearts that are twisted and perverted are drawn to the love of every conceivable and imaginable worldly pleasure. 
sin is smudging a beautiful banquet that God is prepared and is offering to people. Oh, one unbeliever would say, wait a second, wait a second. Yes, I understand I am outside of Christ. I understand. I'm not really hungry for God or the things of God. But don't you accuse me of having a perverted heart. Dear friend, I don't accuse you of this. The Bible does. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's no break in between. Always and only evil. So it doesn't make sense. <clears throat> Let me prove it to you. God is by definition the most satisfying pleasure there is. And yet you don't hunger for God? How is this? Well, what is it that you're hungry for that is deadening your hunger for God? It's sin. Sin is reigning supremely as your God in the temple of your heart. And you love sin and that's why you're not interested in God. You see? Love of sin is what draws unbelievers far away from God. And every unbeliever is gravitationally being pulled away from God. By and because of his sin. That is alienation. And it gets worse from here. Because after being alienated, Paul says, and hostile in mind. Mind is the very core of your being. And you're hostile in mind. What is the word hostile? It means It means enemies. It means haters. And the Bible repeatedly tells us that those that are outside of Christ, not only are they not interested in God, but they are enemies, haters of God. What? Wait a second. Did, did I hear this correctly? I mean, hatred, that's a very strong word. Are you really saying that every single unbeliever hates God? Well, that is exactly what I'm saying. John chapter 3 verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light. Romans 8 verse 7. The mindset on the flesh is hostile. That is, hater toward God. Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2, we know this psalm very well, says, Why are the nations, that's all the nations, that's all people in all the nations, why are they in uproar, even their kings and rulers against God? And Romans 1, verse 30, it spells it out for us that all the world are... Haters of God. 
brothers, sisters, we must remember this and never, ever, ever forget it. That when we were outside of Christ, we were so depraved that we would not even, not only that we don't seek after God, but that we resist God. We suppress the truth of God. We, are, we were rebels. We would walk around shaking our fist against the Almighty. You know, when our children grow up and they leave the church and they leave God, what do their parents do? They start saying, well, what's going on and what's happening? What, is, what, what, what happened to our children? And then they start blaming themselves and the people around them. And they say, oh, we must have burned the bridges with them. Or we didn't give them much attention. Or it's because we didn't have a dedicated ministry to them. No. They leave the church. They leave God. Because they hate God. They hate Him. Just like all unbelievers do. Oh, no, 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 no. Just because I'm not born again, it doesn't mean I hate God. That's a very strong word. I mean, I appreciate Him. I respect Him. I don't say that I hate Him. You say this, my friend, because you created a God that suits you. You respect a God that is a figment of your own imagination. You have little knowledge of the real God in the Bible. But if you're presented with that God of the Bible, a holy and righteous God, you would hate Him. You would find that the Bible is true and you're wrong. What do you mean by that? Well, let me explain. Let's read the text again. It says, and hostile in mind, engaged in what? Evil deeds. What are these evil deeds? It's all our sinful lifestyle, our thoughts, desires, words that come out of our unregenerate heart. God, because He is holy, he hates every intent of our unregenerate heart. We just looked earlier and we saw that God, when He looked down from heaven, He saw that every intent of every thought of man is continually evil. He hates every intent of our unregenerate heart. Because He is righteous, He abhors everything unbelievers stand for. He's so pure, undefiled, so He must hate their impurity. And his holy anger is kindled. And his infinite justice demands that his wrath is to be poured out upon every sinner. Now, do you love this God? No, you don't. You don't. You feel that God, the God of the Bible, is restraining you. That He's choking you. And you would say in your inner thoughts, Well, you know what? I want to set my heart upon all the riches of this world. Why does He have to say that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil? I want to have friendship of this world. Why does He say that friendship with the world is enmity against God? He says, no to me all the time, to the things that I desire to do. His holy standards make me look like I'm so evil. And so what do you do? You hate Him. 
You hate him. We all did. You and I were so afraid of him. And we wished that he was dead. If it was up to us, we would have killed God. Now, if you think this is too much, there is more. Let me give you a universal principle that applies in all time, throughout all generations, in all humanity, and this is it. The more unbelievers know about God, the more they don't want Him. Now, where does God show Himself most vividly? We've been going through this last several weeks. Christ, in Christ, Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of God, right? I mean, God manifested in Himself in no one else more than in Jesus Christ. And yet, what does Jesus Himself say about the world, about all the unbelievers of this world? You know what He says? John 7 verse 7. He says of the world, it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Here we have hostility and evil deeds. John 15 verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me. Again, he says, they hated me without a cause. Again, he says, they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. And for those who, of us who were here last year, you know, we've been going through the gospel of Mark. And as we have come to the climax, to the end of this gospel, and we have found that at the end of Jesus' ministry, that all unbelievers around Jesus wanted him dead. There is no neutrality about this. Let me be absolutely clear. There is no gray area when it comes to God in Jesus Christ. You either love Him or you hate Him. You either crown Him or crucify Him. And I tell you that every unbeliever in his state would crucify Jesus again and again. Oh, what are you what are you talking about? I mean, I would not crucify Jesus. I've got nothing against him. I've got no emotional attachment to him, whether good or bad. And I would not even hurt a fly. How would you say that I will crucify Jesus? Now you're pushing it too far. Am I? Am I? I believe that there is no better proof that those outside of Christ hate Christ than being presented with the gospel and still willfully reject it. No better proof. No better proof than for one to be presented with the gospel, understands the gospel, and yet willfully reject Christ. And I want to prove this statement to you. I want to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that this is definitely true. If Jesus didn't take initiative, 
And suppose that Jesus did not come to earth in order to extend his saving hands to you. It would make sense why you would reject him. You have no knowledge of him. But he did. He took initiative. He is stretching his hand out to you in order to accept you and in order to forgive you. Then why do you still reject him? Oh, but, but the requirements to be saved are too difficult to bear. They're too heavy for me to carry. Really? What are the requirements? What are they? If, if Jesus placed a huge price as a requirement to save you, if he said, well, you have to work really hard, you've got to travel long distance, swim across oceans so that he would accept you, if perhaps he would say, oh, look, you've got to cultivate virtues that are too hard for you to cultivate, and that's why he would save you, we would understand. It makes sense why you would reject it. But what requirements does he place upon you but to simply stretch out your empty hand? And that he would say to you, accept his free, undeserving grace that he generously offers to you. Why would one reject such a generous Savior? Why? Could it be, my friend, that it's because he hates him? And I believe heaven and hell would stand as witnesses against every unbeliever who knows the gospel, who knows Christ, yet still reject him. How come? I'm still in the process of proving to you that every unbeliever who hears the gospel yet reject Christ actually rejects him because he hates Christ. Think about this. Have you thought about this before? That if hell was a comforting place, if hell was a place where there is laughter and pleasures and celebrations, then sure, reject Christ in favor of hell. But if hell was a place of darkness, a place of torment and torture, and an unbeliever still says no to Christ, then how much does one have to hate Christ to say, I would rather drink the full cup of God's wrath. I would rather live in eternal torment and be punished with all demons and all sinners than to come to Christ. Now, does this not show how unbelievers hate Christ? Again, let's talk about heaven and the blessings that God gives through Jesus. Again, suppose that if Jesus, in order to receive him, that, that he would bring curses along with him if he were to abide in you. 
you could say, well, you know, you think in, in your mind and you would say, well, I don't have any hatred towards Christ. I love Him. I appreciate Him. But, but the reason why I wouldn't want Him to abide in me is because of all these curses that He brings upon my life. So I don't really want to receive Him for that reason. But what does Jesus bring along with Him if He would to abide in you? What would He bring? Let me give you some of these blessings. Forgiveness of sins. Adoption into God's family. Eternal abundant blessings above your imagination, beyond your thoughts. Who in his right mind would reject such wonderful blessings? Who would ever say, forgiveness of sin? Yuck, I, I don't want my sins to be forgiven. Nobody thinks this way. Let me tell you, even the devil would have loved for his sins to be forgiven. Adoption into God's family. Redemption. The wrath of God to no longer abide in you. Everybody loves his blessings. And yet, you reject Christ. And my question to you is this. How much do you have to hate Christ to say, Oh man, I, I love all these blessings. I love all of them. But if to have all his blessings, it would mean to have Jesus, then I would rather be deprived of the forgiveness of sins, adoption, freedom, redemption. I would rather be deprived of all so I would not have Christ. Has a thought settled in your mind? This is it. This is how bad our condition apart from Christ was. Morally bankrupt. Our spiritual wallet was totally empty. This is you and I, brothers and sisters. We were. So wicked, so vile sinners, helpless and hopeless, sons and daughters of Adam, worthy of nothing but eternal punishment because of how much we blasphemed against God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, what a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful Savior. We come to the second point. How good is the good news? Or may I, may I paraphrase this? How good is our Savior? Let's continue reading verse 22. It says, yet he has now reconciled you. This word yet. What a beautiful three-letter word. Because it means while. While we were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet, Jesus reconciled you. Ponder upon this astonishing truth, brothers. Can we even envision this breathtaking love of Jesus? Romans 5 verse 10 says this, For if while... We were enemies. 
Again, it's the same word, the haters of God. While we were haters of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Meaning, while there is still hostility in our heart, while there are curses in our lips, while the hammer that nailed our Lord Jesus is still in our blood-stained hand and a spear in the other, while there is a spit in our mouth, Jesus died for us. This speaks of God's immense love, does it not? Brothers, God doesn't love us because we are so good. He loves us despite of how bad we are. Now, the next, and I believe the most powerful word in this passage, he reconciled, reconciled you. What does this word mean, reconciliation? To bring two parties together who once were in enmity. And to create peace between these two parties. Reconciliation basically means to cancel the alienation and hostility that we had towards God. To bring harmony between God and man. Now, in a real sense, this reconciliation is the crown of what Christ has done for us. The goal, the sweetest aspect of atonement. It's a word that is dripping with honey. And I want to be so audacious. And in fear and in trembling, I dare to say that this aspect of atonement is so much better than even forgiveness of sins, than freedom from punishment, than even redemption, or even justification, or anything else. All of these are essential ingredients to our salvation, absolutely. But the ice on the cake is reconciliation. Why? What does reconciliation even mean? Because it means that our relationship with God is restored. That we can enjoy the peace with God. That we now have access to the all-satisfying, incomparably magnificent God that our sin cut us off from. Whether, whether election, whether redemption, adoption, forgiveness, all of these are only to pave the way for the ultimate purpose. The real deal is to get to God. To be reconciled to the one who, in whose presence, the scripture tells us, the fullness of joy. The one in his right hand pleasures forevermore. That is reconciliation. What makes it beautiful? Now we continue and it says, In his fleshly body, through death. This is how Jesus reconciled us. Have you thought about what it took for Jesus to reconcile us? What are the, the obstacles that the cross of Jesus had to overcome for us to reach a point of reconciliation. All hindrances 
that held us back from enjoying God, Jesus abolished by his death on the cross. Let's, let's think some of, about some of them as we're reflecting on Christ and the goodness of this good news. You have sin. Sin created this infinite chasm between us and God. And the cross of Jesus bridged this gap. He became our sin bearer. The Lamb of God that takes the sin, away the sin of the world. And so by his death, he removed this obstacle called sin. But still, we were still sentenced to, to hell. The wrath of God was ready to be poured out upon us any moment. Yet Jesus on the cross drank the cup of God's wrath for us down to the very last drop, leaving nothing. For us to drink. We were enslaved to Satan. No hope to be freed from his tyranny. From death. And Jesus was the ransom price. Offered himself up. On the cross. He conquered Satan. And set us free from the devil and death. Beautiful stuff. All of these though are external. Yet the scripture tells us there is hostility internally. What about this internal hostility? What about our internal wickedness of our own heart that leads us to hate God and to not enjoy Him? Well, Christ on the cross, He purchased for us a new heart, new desires, new birth, everything new, new life, new beginning. You and I have become new. Brothers and sisters, the scripture tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. What does that mean? It means that once we open our new eyes for the first time, when our new hearts started beating, we found God to be most attractive to our soul, most delightful. Through faith, we breathe the breath of life and we found God to be most satisfying, unspeakably pleasurable. And that is reconciliation. And this is what makes the gospel good news. This is what makes heaven, heaven. Paradise, paradise. Yes. Yes, brothers, we will walk on a new earth one day. We will not have sin. We will not have sickness. We will enjoy the company of each other. But far more glorious than this, far more better than all of that, is that we are going to meet God that we will enjoy forever and ever. And we will talk to Him. And we're going to fellowship and worship Him. Freely, without any obstructions. Now, this good news only gets better. Look at the result of reconciliation. This is how good our good, the good news is. Look at the result. In order to present you before Him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach this is what is amazing about the gospel this is why jesus came for he came 
And what did he do? He looked upon you. He looked upon me. And what did he see? He saw an enemy. A despicable being. With, uh, with a dark heart. A polluted mind. Full of evil deeds. And yet, he reconciled us. And what is the end? What is the purpose? First, holy. To present us holy. That is, to be separate. Set apart from sin. Consecrated to God. That's what holy means. Fully dedicated to God. Second, blameless. Because of Jesus' death, we now stand faultless. Guiltless in the sight of God. Brothers, I want to say something very important to you. When you sin, when I sin, yes, there is a sense where I ought to be convicted of this sin. Repent and come again to Christ to cleanse me. But there is a sense where you should not say, Man, I'm guilty. No, you're not. You're not. You may feel guilty, but you're not guilty. Not in the sight of God, you're not. Why? Because Jesus reconciled you to God. And what does this mean? It means you are in the sight of God, guilt-free, with no faults. And the third is beyond reproach. That is to say that we will be that we would be in, in a state where no criticism, no accusation can be made against us. No one can bring a single charge against us. Not an angel in heaven, not a demon in hell, not a man could ever bring a single charge before the elect, before God. So if you think about it, how bad, how bad is our depravity? Paul gave us three items in the list. How good is this reconciliation, the good news? Paul gives us three in the list. And look how wonderfully they match each other. Once you were alienated from God to sin. Now you're alienated from sin to God. That's holy. That's holiness. Once you're an enemy, now because of the blood, God sees the innocence of, your, of His Son Jesus in you. And that is blameless. Once you had evil deeds, now God sees nothing but the perfect righteousness of Jesus in you. That is beyond reproach. And the price was the death of Jesus on the cross. Can we fathom that love that Christ had for us? Love that is not just only covers the entire universe, but personally reaches deep in the very corner of our heart, the very darkest corners, and to bring reconciliation to you and me. And we find ourselves, we who were wretched, vile, wicked rebels, yet because of Jesus, 
embraced and welcomed by loving arms of God. What a beautiful truth. Brothers, let this awe-inspiring truth sink deep into our souls. Let it sink deep. Being reconciled. And forever you are reconciled to God. Who would hear this wonderful truth and embraces it, yet walk out of this room ungrateful? Brothers, I want to say to you, no matter how severe your trials are, no matter how painful they are, no matter who is oppressing you, no matter the kind of suffering you're going through, you are anchored to God. You are reconciled to the Father through Jesus. No one could ever take this away from you. And while we're journeying through this life with all of its obstacles and pain and rejections, you know that you're anchored to God. You're reconciled to the Father. You who once were an enemy, now seated at the table. Now, before you were a child of a devil, now you're a child of God. And no one will take that away from you. How comforting. How wonderful to reflect on this. May we, as we reflect on, on this truth, that this truth would compel us to really and truly surrender our lives to Him. To enjoy Christ more than to enjoy having fun with my mates. To enjoy Christ far more than to enjoy having a car or some worldly security that will fade away. And we pray, as we reflect on this truth, that our souls would say to Jesus Christ, Jesus, be exalted above all. Be exalted. Your love, your mercy, your grace have no end. And we bow before your throne of grace. Desiring nothing in this world but to please you alone. Friend. You heard what the scripture says about the terrible condition of your heart. And let me... Let me thrust this sword of the Word of God even deeper into your conscience. Because though right now, as we stand, you do hate God and you do hate Christ, yet how depraved do you have to be? How delusional do you have to be to hear this truth, to hear the terrible condition of your heart? And that terrible, terrible destiny that you're heading. And yet you still remain to be in your sin. Unrepentant. Not willing to come to Christ to save you. How depraved. How wicked do you have to be, friend, if you're outside of Christ. To hear that God through Jesus offers free salvation, free grace to you. Yet you look at this grace and you spit on it in order for you to continue indulging into your sin. And yet, 
with all the constant rejections from your heart. Yet Christ sends me today to tell you that here am I, an ambassador of Christ, and I beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. While you're still in this deadness, in this rotten, wicked condition of your heart, yet Christ once again offers you an invitation to come to Him, bearing nothing but your own wickedness, coming to Him, presenting your own wicked heart, and to tell Him, here am I, Jesus, save me, save me. He would save you freely. He would bring you into His sheepfold. You will be counted as one of His sheep. He would protect your soul. He will preserve your soul. He will radically change your heart. He will give you a heart that would desire Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him. Come to Him. Don't tell him how good you are. Don't tell him how much you love him or respect him. Tell him how much you hated him. How much you blasphemed his name. And he would accept you. On what basis? On the basis, on the fact that he already paid the price for your sins. What a, mon what a wonderful Savior. What a great Savior that we offer you today. Oh, please, accept him. And you will be counted as one of those that would celebrate the work of Christ for you. For you. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you for what a, what a reconciliation He offers us. What a wonderful salvation we have in Jesus. Every soul that is saved can say, though I'm a great sinner, yet Jesus is a greater Savior. In Jesus' name, Amen.